Welcome to the IT Career Energizer podcast. For anyone who wants to build and grow a career in IT, develop and improve your strengths and skills, be inspired and motivated by the successes of others, manage your career progression, and achieve your IT career goals. And now, your host, Phil Burgess. Welcome to episode 164 of the IT Career Energizer podcast. My guest on today's show is a functional programming advocate. He has worked in the IT industry for more than 15 years in a variety of roles, including software support, development lead, project management, and systems analysis. He is the co-founder of the Knoxville Functional Programmers Group and is currently a senior consultant for ResultStack. So welcome to the IT Career Energizer podcast, Reed Evans. Hi, thank you, Phil. Very, very nice to be here. So first thing I wanted to pick up with you, could you perhaps tell us a little bit about the Knoxville Functional Programmers Group and, and what your involvement is with uh, setting it up? Yeah, well, it's actually uh, great timing that you asked. So we've been around for, I don't know, maybe three or four years now, just as a kind of a friendly hangout. The past two years, we've actually had a conference that we've put on. And in fact, uh, I mentioned good timing because we actually just had our 2019 event was this past weekend. So we had two days. It was a single track, two day conference with uh, speakers from really all over the U.S. We had some from, uh, I had a a presenter from Washington. Uh, We had another one from Hawaii come in. So uh, really across the United States. So we, we were really fortunate to have just some amazing, amazing presentations. And so we're really looking forward to what next year happens. So this is an annual event. It's becoming that way. So two years in, so what what was the reason for setting it up in the first place? Well, so I think one of the things that we wanted to do, I mentioned its co-founder. So um, a gentleman named uh, Cameron Presley and myself kind of started it. And we were both presenting at conferences. And what we found was that at least at the time, there were certain types of talks that we could give, but we had to stay at a very 101 or rudimentary kind of a class level. And we really wanted to be able to present on some things that were a little bit past the basic stuff, which is difficult to do at a general purpose conference. Uh, we also wanted just a place where you know people could come together and share ideas that were maybe slightly outside of the mainstream. Right. And obviously the focus very much on functional programming, presumably. Yeah. And really what's interesting is, is that there's this idea of functional programming, but what I can tell you is we had, I'm wanting to say 12 sessions. And from the 12 sessions that we had, the variety of different types of subgenres within functional programming was quite diverse. Everything from, you know, dynamic typing to statically typed to Everything in between JavaScript to Elixir to Erlang to functional Scala to some Haskell to even a little bit of Idris. So just across the board, all different things that can be defined in, as functional programming. Right. And it presumably is something you want to continue with and you can see the growth occurring within it. Oh, my goodness. Yes. And uh, I mean, one of the things that was interesting this year is just seeing some of the other general purpose conferences have a much more concerted effort to have functional programming talks. What I'm noticing more and more is there's this divide of programming 
and functional programming, it's not as wide or as caustic as it was when I started doing this. And it's just becoming, look, this is just programming. It's not this ivory tower thing anymore. We had two talks from two amazing talks from people who had been just out of code camps who were giving these talks on functional programming. It took me years to learn the stuff that these very junior developers. Um, in yeah. fact, one of them had less than a month worth of experience actually developing on a job and the, just the knowledge that they had about this stuff that took me years to learn is just very, very encouraging. I suppose it's very positive a reflection really on, on how things have changed over the recent sort of decade or so that the ability to learn and, and the amount of information and the support you can get is, uh, certainly more attainable. Yeah, it is. And what I find is that when you're coming to it from fresh, everything is difficult, <laughs> but <laughs> when you have, as I did a decade programming in an object oriented style, you know, mutating variables, passing object state around, you've got state and behavior all tied up into one thing. And all of these very, very traditional object oriented things with dependency injection and IOC containers and, and all of these, this massive book of gang of four patterns that, you know, that I'd spent the better part of 10 years trying to really own my craft and become more proficient in to then switch to functional programming that was tough because I had some very deep seated ideas about how to build software. But the thing is, is if you don't have all of that, you know, if you don't have this well-worn path of this is how I should do things, then it's kind of, kind of interesting to see uh, just how quickly people pick it up. Reed, can you perhaps share a career tip with us? Maybe one the audience doesn't know and should. My tip is going to be that so much of what we do in software tends to be related to how fast can we move tickets across a board or that had been my experience. And what I would say is, is that if you let people put you in a box, they will gladly do so because if you, if you can be put into a singular box, then you can be replaced by any other developer that can be put in that same box. So find the things that you are interested in that are associated with development that maybe aren't strictly, yes, I can move a JIRA ticket across a board. You know, if you're into design, learn some more about the UX patterns or, or what makes good design. If you enjoy communicating and talking with people, that's a huge win. And it's something that can set you apart from other developers who are merely moving tickets across the JIRA board. Right. So is there anything you've particularly done in that respect? Or have you chosen something where you've thought, yes, that's really where I want to focus? I did not have the, what I consider traditional journey into development. Um, so I was actually much more into the software support. I was technically a vice president of a small independent software company before I wrote professional code. So it was more on the product owner side. And I had been writing software since I was, you know, in middle school on calculators and such, but but had never done it actually to earn a paycheck. And I kind of backfilled into getting into development. And that's when I found that people didn't want me to think they wanted me to just solve a problem, solve whatever ticket, you know, shut up, don't ask any questions. 
we put everything in this user story, just do that. And now coming full circle back into the consulting world, uh, which is where I've been now for a couple of years with Result Stack, I get to actually go and ask the questions and I get to determine, I get to, not to determine, I get to uh, chat with people and figure out why are we solving these problems? What problem are we solving? Um, and for me, that's really, really gratifying. Yes. No, the importance is definitely about you know, the end solution, isn't it? And what benefit that provides. And therefore, yes, it's all about the problem you're solving. Without the reasoning, it's very, very easy to get cynical about anything you're developing. But for me. Sure. Okay. Right. Um, Reed, can you perhaps tell us about your worst IT career moment and what you learned from that experience? You know, it's funny how amazing this dovetails with what we were just talking about. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It was in a situation where it was very much, hey, this this is the ticket. This is what you're tasked with doing. Basically, we had this thing that they wanted us to do, that the business wanted us to do. It was a big, complicated project uh, that had been built over decades, probably at that point. And we spent months, we went off and, you know, in our little cubicles and we, and we built this stuff and we come back and we delivered it to the customers. Finally, you know, like surprise, here's what we built for you. We pushed it into production and to the surprise of probably no one listening, that didn't go too well. That, that almost never goes well. It turns out that we had actually just Everything that we had built, the initial system essentially already did. And we took something that was taking, that had built in reliances of, you know, a couple seconds to process and we took it and made it take a minute. Um, So we just (laughs) added all this needless code. It really didn't solve anything. And it all comes down to, I mean, at some point somewhere, people just got in their head that they, that they couldn't ask questions and, and by, by people somewhere, I mean, like, this is, this is not me shirking blame, right? I should have been, I should have been asking the questions. I should have been more interested in what problem were we solving than, Hey, I get to open up a code editor and create a whole bunch of code. I should have been trying to map out what was needed rather than being so excited to create something. That's a common story in terms of a recipe for disaster when it comes to software design. So yes, and it's a yes. real combination of things as well. It's not just, you mentioned the point about the fact that you need to be able to ask the right questions to make sure you build the right solution. Um, but it's also that communication, isn't it? In terms of making sure that that's continual, not just a one-off, if you see what I mean, when you capture the initial requirement. Completely agree. The thing is, is at the beginning of a project, the goal is that you know the absolute least at the beginning of a project. Yeah. And so as you are learning more about the project, and this goes with both both sides, majority of the clients that I work with, the majority of the projects that I work on, the problems that, that we're you know, trying to overcome, neither side really knows. They have a decent idea, but neither side really knows what the project's even going to be when it's done. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so moving away from your worst moment, can you perhaps tell us about your career highlight or greatest success? That one's harder. Apparently, I'm really good at failing and not so awesome at having highlights. Um, <laughs> I've done a lot of things that I that I really enjoy. I'll tell you what my favorite moments are. My favorite moments are when I'm working with other people and they've been stuck on a problem for a while and I'm able to come in and get them unstuck and then really 
give them the tools to be able to solve that problem the next time. And those are like little micro wins that I look for more than one, like a huge project that just, you know, angels were singing and such as we hit the deploy button. (laughs) I think I get far more value out of that. And I also think that the takeaway for me in that is those little micro interactions that we have with people that I have with people, what I've noticed is that I have far more control over those than I do. Which project am I on? Does this project tick off every wish list bucket item, whatever that I might have? You know, a lot of those things we don't have that much control over for various reasons, but, you know, we have a lot of control over our interactions every day with the people that we work with. Yes. I, as where I am in my career right now, would not have wanted to work with me younger in my career. So that was a a hard earned lesson, um, but one that, uh, that I'm trying to get better at doing. So, Reed, can you perhaps tell us what excites you about the future of the IT industry and careers in IT? Sure. I mean, uh, you know, we, we talked about the functional programming path to where it's just like, this is just programming now, you know, rather than necessarily having to, to quantify it. I see a lot of hope in new developers who are very, very passionate about what they're wanting to do about getting into software development, about building things, and really about not just building things to build things, but being inspired by the work that they're doing too. And that's really exciting. So I think a combination of those two things, the technical stuff that's coming along, the mainstream languages that are getting better, the new languages that are becoming mainstream, I think all of those things combined you know, there's a lot of options now that I don't think were really there when I got started. There was C Sharp, there was Java, C++. I mean, there were, there were others for sure. But, you know, nowadays, you, you, there are so many different languages and so many different technologies that you can get into um, and really find one that fits and, and that you enjoy. Yeah, I think the opportunity is there. And, and the uh, yes, the amount of different programming languages, as you say, and the opportunities to do different things is uh, certainly something that anybody coming into the industry now in particular, it's, it's just so open. I would say the only thing that we would need to be cautious about is being tied to the tech that you're using. Whatever language you're using is a language you're using right now that doesn't define you as a person. So feel free to learn languages because the secret is is that the more languages you learn the easier it is to learn the next one yes i mean i know that to be true i mean it wasn't that long ago that i was still being paid to write delphi um, and not even like current delphi and i was really really stuck but then you know i learned java and then i learned c sharp and then i learned a few other languages and and those were all kind of the same and then and then i swung into the f sharp world a little bit you know and now you start learning the multiple paradigms and different ways of thinking about things and you know new languages come along they're, they're pretty easy to pick up once you start learning them yep it took me a very long time and i'm still trying to learn english so <laughs> <laughs> fair enough <laughs> right okay we're going to go into the reveal round now we're going to find out a little bit more about you and the way you think Are you ready for this i uh, love to do it so what first attracted you to a career in it so i was um in music school and I was a cook 
at a restaurant and was absolutely fed up with it. And I rage quit that job. And I was chatting with my dad about quitting that job. And he said, well, you want to come answer phones with me for me? Cause he has his own uh, software company. And I said, sure. I mean, I got to pay my bills somehow. <laughs> That's pretty much what got me into it. So some very fortunate that, uh, that I had that opportunity yes. because a lot of people would not have had that opportunity. So I'm very, very thankful that I, that I had that opportunity. What is the best career advice you've ever received? I'm not sure. I saw one earlier today that was that I that I really really like, and I wish I had learned a lot earlier. But was don't seek feedback from someone you wouldn't ask their advice. Yes, yeah, and that just sounds amazing. <laughs> like I'm still trying to fully process that and think about how that would have changed some things for me over my career. And conversely, what is the worst career advice you've ever received? It doesn't matter what you do nine to five. You can find stuff that you enjoy after work. All you need to do is make money. That's like the absolute worst possible advice that I have ever been given. Um, <laughs> right. Okay. Is that through experience or just because you don't believe that it's valid? I mean, money is great, but every job that I've taken for the money, and there have been a few, I have been miserable. Yeah. I mean, just absolutely miserable the whole time. And I don't know whether there's, you know, there's correlation is not causation. I, I don't know if there's something in between there. There were times where I was making plenty of money and was miserable. And what I find interesting is if you go into the local running shop, you know, you get outfitted for new running shoes. Everyone in there is just beaming and poss possibly it's just the runner's high that's in effect full time. But, you know, they're not making much money, but they don't care. They're still happy. They're having a good time. They're doing what they want to do. Exactly, yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned the nine to five thing. My, my opinion is always that that is a, a large proportion of your life. Yes. So <laughs> you should be enjoying it. It should be something you want to do. So, yeah, it needs to be part of you. It's, it's, it's not just something separate. Yes. If you were to begin your IT career again right now, what would you do? You know, I would probably seek one of the boot camps. And I say that as someone who I do have a bachelor's degree, but the idea of being around other people with the boot camp, uh, and so many of them are incentivized to help you find jobs when you get out, that I think, you know, the best way to do anything is to do it, or the best way to learn anything is to do it. So if you want to get into software development, then you need to develop software. So whatever you can do to get to, to where you can do that fast enough, I think there is value in a four-year education. I would not say that my four-year education helped me become a developer in any way, aside from the fact that it checked off that box so that HR could not turn me down. <laughs> yes. And what career objectives are you currently focusing on? I think we touched on a lot of it earlier. I love helping people. I'm really liking getting into, into this, uh, what I'm kind of calling meta consulting, which is where, you know, I'm starting to kind of help consult some of our consultants. And that's really a lot of fun, but really is to develop better relationships with who I'm building the software for. 
and to really understand what their needs are. So I don't know that you can ever win at that. You know, you, you can get better at it, but you can't, I don't think you can win at that. Yep. And what's the number one non-technical skill that has helped you in your career so far? Yeah, I like to say that my my superpower is asking dumb questions. <laughs> I think the answer to that, though, is there are no dumb questions. <laughs> that's that's true. But what I think I think it does a couple things. One, I've done enough dumb things in my life that I'm I'm over this thing of being afraid of being laughed at or whatever, you know? So I don't know whether you call that confidence or I'm sure there's some more accurate word. A lot of times it comes across as very, very confident that I can be in a room and ask a question that is dumb. I usually preface it with, hey, this is probably a dumb question, but have we considered X? A lot of it just level sets. A lot of it as a consultant is very easy to do because I'm coming into a project new. You know, whereas if I had been working at this company for five years and then I ask a dumb question that everyone, you know, there's some question of why didn't you ask this five years ago? So a lot of it allows me to be able to do some of that. But I think prefacing it too allows a more honest and objective response. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't, I think if you pitch it in the right way or frame it in a particular way, um, it doesn't really matter if the question is obvious or, or what you might consider to be slightly, uh, as you said, dumb. But um, yeah, I think it's, it's a case of how you communicate the question. Yeah. Well, and what I don't want to do is for someone to think that there's a question. I'm trying to just level set and get to the root cause or the root issue that we have. And maybe we think we have to solve B, but the only reason we have to solve B is because A wasn't solved well or because we did A. And so that's where I'm trying to get. And what I don't want people to do is to think that I'm being prescriptive. I'm saying, hey, I just want to understand this may be a dumb question, but I'd rather ask that now than us assume we have to build B. Because as we mentioned in my career failure, <laughs> we didn't do that then, right? That, that was not something that was done. That, I did not do that well enough then. And what do you do to keep your own career energized? Conferences, chatting with other people, it is amazing how much that energizes me. Seeing what other people are doing and being inspired by other people learning and presenting things that they're energized about is the best way that I know. It's it's just remarkable for me. Seeing seeing someone else be really, really passionate about something makes me want to learn or be passionate about something else. And what do you do in your spare time away from technology? If I am not in front of a computer or with the family, I am, uh, I, I'm running or I'm on a bike. I am a very suboptimal triathlete, uh, but I just absolutely love it. Doing something that has nothing to do with technology, yes. yeah. <laughs> you know, so that when I get back to it, I'm not burnt out. Sure. So do you feel that's quite therapeutic and it, and it allows you to sort of your mind to be released, if you like, from what you do on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, is if you, if you go out and, you know, a lot of, most of my runs are, are, are the, the, the very, very slow, like zone two kind of things where it's, you know, like a brisk walk up a hill is comparable to my level of effort. But then if you, <laughs> if you get into like a threshold or a tempo run, that's like 20 minutes or, or longer, you're not thinking about anything else other than 
one foot in front of the other for a while. So it's, yeah. it's a mindful sort of thing. I, I do have a, I do have a little Garmin watch that tracks, but other than that, I don't have any technology. I don't listen to anything. The only thing I listen to is my footsteps to know whether or not my form is good. I know 100% that I am a better developer, coworker, uh, father and husband on days that I have run or biked or got some sort of endorphins going from moving and from essentially stressing my heart and, and my cardio. Yeah. Reed, can you share a parting piece of career advice with the IT Career Energizer audience? I think my biggest one would be to find a place where you are respected. And the easiest way to do that is to give respect. If you show respect to the people that you work with, one of two things can happen. Either they can still not respect you, and in which case it's time to move and find someplace where that's not the case, or they will respect you then. And the relationship and your, your working relationships can be so much better. I might add on here and say that if you are in a situation that is not going well, go somewhere else. There's no reason being miserable someplace. Every yeah. job is going to have, you're going to have ups and downs, but if you've been miserable for a month, two months, I, you know, I don't know. It, it's, that's a bit of a, whatever number there is arbitrary, but if you're going to bed on a Saturday night and thinking, oh, tomorrow's Sunday and I got to work on Monday and half of your weekend is ruined because you're dreading going to work on Monday on a Saturday and I've been there, the money's not worth it. Money's just going to buy you things and you probably don't need most of the things that you have. And finally, what's the best way we can find out more about you and connect with you? Probably Twitter. Um, I'm on Twitter at uh, Reed R E I D N Evans, and I know you do. I know you do great things in the show notes, so um, I know people can find me there. A website. I blog occasionally on Medium. I'll have to figure out what my username is on there. Unfortunately, I don't have the same username everywhere, but um, I do some blogging uh, there on a lot of abstract algebra and functional programming topics. Uh, those are probably the best places. And then, of course, Functional Knox, uh, which is on Twitter, at Functional Knox. Those are the big places, probably. Great. Okay. Well, Reed, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's been great chatting with you. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Phil. I really enjoyed it. As always, my thanks go to my guest on today's show. You'll find a show notes page for today's episode on the IT Career Energizer website, which will be itcareerenergizer.com slash e, and then the number of today's episode. I also want to thank you for your continued support. It's always great to hear from listeners, particularly when they have suggestions about potential guests or ways to improve the show. And this was one of the reasons for creating the new IT Career Energizer Community Facebook group. I'm really excited about taking the podcast forward, and I hope that you'll continue to support and listen to the show as it continues to change and evolve. Thanks for listening, and remember, if you're not growing your career, you're slowing your career. Thanks for listening to the IT Career Energizer podcast. To find out more about building a successful career in IT, visit itcareerenergizer.com.